Last week was Mother's Day. It was a strange Mother's Day, but uh, last week was Mother's Day, and uh, so we talked about a lot of things. But one of the questions that I asked last week, I want to revisit right now and then kind of jump off from that point uh, if we can. And the question was, if there are so many of us who know and profess that God loves us, then why are there still so many of us who are still so fearful, still so afraid, either in this COVID situation or just life in general? Why is it? We know God loves us. And yet the fear persists. And the answer that we came up with, I guess I came up with last week, whether you bought it or not, and we were talking in the context of Mother's Day, was that we may know that God loves us, but do we really know that God likes us? And the difference between those two, between loving and liking, is kind of the difference between the father's love and the mother's love. This idea of loving, especially the love of God, can remain very abstract in our thinking. It can remain distant. It can remain absolutely invisible. Of course, it's invisible. It's God's love. But liking implies something very different. Liking implies affection, uh, delight, and and pleasure in in the person that you like, Um, that desire to be with, that it's not a party without them, that all of those issues that go along with just a playful attention and and the laughter and the camaraderie and the feeling that goes with liking is very different than simply this idea of loving. All of that is what we talked about last week as being the attributes of the mother's love, that she likes her children. She takes pleasure in her children. While the father may put the standards and push the children to do what they need to do, and the balance, of course, is necessary. If we only know our God as the Father and only have experienced love through that abstract intellectual understanding, then yes, the fear remains. If we have actually experienced the mother's love of God, if we've experienced the liking, things start to change. And that's what we talked about. And I think there's a lot more that we need to talk about with fear because... To be honest with you, the more that I'm talking to people and the more that I am just watching what's going on over this lockdown period, I'm seeing the fear rising. I'm feeling the, seeing the stress rising, the anxiety rising. I'm seeing more and more fractures between roommates, between spouses, between families. It, this is doing something to us. And then, of course, statistically, we know that depression is rising, suicide rates are rising. Um, domestic violence calls are rising. So all of that stuff is happening out there. I'm seeing it in microcosm. I'm seeing it among our community, but it is out there. What is it that we can do to start to step away from the fear? And we talked about it in terms of Mother's Day, but maybe we can go another step further into this and see if we can do something that will help us to let go of some of the fear that we may be carrying around. You know, first of all, we have to really understand something about fear. It's a negative emotion, obviously. But fear is not bad. Fear is not evil. In fact, fear is absolutely necessary to our survival. I mean, fear is an appropriate response, isn't it? If there is a clear and present danger. We're supposed to fear that. That's what's going to keep us alive. The fear is going to make us alert. The fear is going to focus us. The fear is going to do a lot of things that are going to help us survive in actual, clear, and present danger. If you're walking down a dark alley at night, 
you should be fearful. You should be alert and you should be aware. That fear is going to focus you. Hopefully that fear is going to keep you from walking down a dark alley at night. But either way, the fear is a useful thing. It's an appropriate response. And this is how our brain works, if you really think about it. How our brain works is to distinguish and categorize things. Once the brain has one experience with something, it sees that, it categorizes it, and it puts it on the shelf. And then it stores all that information. This is friend, this is foe, you know. You can eat the green ones, but avoid the yellow ones, all that kind of stuff. You know, this is a snake, this is a spider, this is a teddy bear. We store all that information for quick recall. It's kind of like, you know, um, bookmarking a link on your browser on the internet. You know, you find something and you want to get right back to it again, you bookmark it and you can go right to it. This quick recall can be the difference between life and death in survival situations. Our brain does that for us. And that's perfect when there is a clear and present danger right in front of us. But when Jesus says don't judge, what he's talking about is all that stored information, all those categories, all those pigeonholes in your brain that you have stored stuff are not going to be working for you when there isn't a clear and present danger. They're not going to be working for you when the circumstances of the situation that created the category in the first place is no longer present. Now it's working against you. Now you're bringing your prejudices and your biases and your own ideas of things instead of really experiencing what's right in front of you. But the way the brain works and the fear of the unknown and the fear of a threat is absolutely essential. It's something that we need to have to survive. It's what we should feel when a life is threatened, either our own or one of our loved ones. I had a woman talk to me about how afraid she was for her elderly mother during this outbreak because she's one of the ones that's really at risk. For her mother, the virus is a clear and present danger, at least to the extent that it's possible to get through her nursing home and her, her convalescent home where she is. But she was worried about her mother. She was worried about visiting her mother because if she did that, although she missed her terribly, she might infect her. Same thing with her grandkids. She's worried about them. You know, that's an appropriate fear to a certain extent. But when the fear becomes generalized, when it moves into an anxiety, when it moves into stress or depression, when it no longer is connected to a clear and present danger anymore, and even more so when it becomes irrational, that's what's called phobia to psychologists, then it is keeping us from being able to live our lives with the abandon and the abundance that Jesus is talking about. We need to be able to make the shift. We need to be able to distinguish between fear that is appropriate, that is tied to clear and present danger, and fear that is not. And so the question is, you know, what kind of fear are you feeling right now? And what type is it really? That's what we need to try to find out. Now, if you're fearing something where there is an absolute clear and present danger, you're walking down that alley at night, then it's easy. That fear is appropriate. There's an immediate action that probably needs to take place, something that we can do to defend ourselves, to protect ourselves, to fight or flight, you know, that whole bit. But sometimes the danger is clear, but it's not really present. Maybe we see something coming. Maybe we see the threat is possible. It's real. It's present. 
but uh, it's, it's clear, but it's not necessarily present. So what do we need to do in that situation? Well, we need to prepare, I suppose. You know, we need to prepare our defenses. We need to prepare our offenses. We need to prepare for what we see coming. That's good common sense. The fear is going to motivate us. It's going to give us the energy and the focus to be able to do everything we need to do for a threat that is clear but not present. Sometimes it's the other way around. Maybe the danger is present, but it's not really clear. Well, how does that work? Well, you know, it's happening all around us with this virus. You know, the danger is present of the virus, the danger of infection, the danger of everything that goes along with that. But it's not really clear anymore. We thought it was clear two and a half months ago when all this started, but now there are experts fighting with experts every time you turn on the TV or listen to the radio. You know, everybody is contradicting every are masks good or are masks bad? You know, can you go to the beach or not go to the beach? Everything is now very unclear. The danger is still present, but it's no longer clear. In cases like that, where we don't have clear and present danger, is there a way to manage our fear through that? Is there a way that we can still be engaged enough to protect ourselves and protect the ones we love and even the ones that we don't love? and yet still manage the fear. Now I said you know, earlier, for someone who is health compromised, this danger is both clear and present. But once you've done all that you can to protect yourself or to protect your loved one, then what happens? Does the fear still remain? Does it remain still at that intense level? You've already protected. You've done everything you can. You've got all the toilet paper you need. You've got your mask. You've got your gloves. You're staying home. You're doing everything you're supposed to do. And yet, are you still sitting there in abject fear? Even behind all of those defenses that we have built up, are we still stressed? Are we still anxious? Are we depressed? Are we angry? Because all those negative emotions are all the children of fear. It all boils down to fear. If we're fearful and we've done everything that we can possibly do, what's going on? We got people who are still afraid to go out. We got people who are afraid to stay in now because they believe that the economic danger is more clear and present than the medical danger. We got people that are afraid not to wear a mask. They get angry if they see others not wearing masks. And then we have those who are angry to be told they have to wear a mask. You know, everybody is all over. We have become stuck in this fear. We become paralyzed almost as a society because we're almost in a stalemate now. Group pitted against group, feeling opposite things. And how do we move forward? How can we really reopen and do the things that we did before with all of these fears that are kind of canceling each other out and keeping us stuck in a position. I was thinking about that, and I wanted to read you something that comes from about 80 years ago. And it was uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, first inaugural address. He, he won the 1932 
election beat Herbert Hoover, if you all remember that. It was the, the, the Great Depression was four years old. It was at the lowest, one of the lowest points in the Depression. And everyone had lost in this country, lost confidence in the leadership, in President Hoover, in where the country was going. And literally, the country really wasn't going anywhere. Hoover was not adept at being able to move with, recognize the clear and present danger, and move the country and the government in new directions. And so Roosevelt won in a landslide. And the need for leadership was so palpable among the people. The fear was so great that they were looking forward to this first inaugural address. Because even though he won, people still didn't know much about Roosevelt. He was the type of person who kind of remained a bit aloof. Historians say that he ran a campaign that was short on specifics, but long on just inspiration. And so the, the country was tuned into their radios, no televisions in 1933, but tuned into their radios to listen to what he had to say. And I want to just read the first paragraph of his address that he gave on March 4th, 1933, on the east portico of the Capitol building. And he said, I am certain that my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impel. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Probably the most famous line, obviously, in his presidency, all four terms, you know. When the people heard his voice, it changed them. Government had been paralyzed. The fear in the people was causing them panic. It was causing them to run on the bank, take all the assets out of the bank, which was making the, the, the process worse, making the depression worse as they pulled their money out. And the depression and the family breakdowns that were happening, the suicide rates starting to sound familiar? The fear was causing more problems and making the problems that the country already had worse. FDR called it out. He went right to the point. It is now the fear that is driving many of our problems and not the problems themselves. I have a solution, and I'm going to tell you what that solution, he said, is to the problems we have. But the fear is your problem, and you're going to need to deal with that. And if we can work together, we're going to be able to pull back from this fear. We're going to be able to pull back from these circumstances. You see, even if the danger is clear and present, we can still manage the fear if we have a hope and we have a trust in the way forward, a trust in a solution that can take us through the danger. If you, I, I would just in, encourage all of you, go home and Google FDR's first inaugural address and listen to a recording of it, even if it's just a portion that I read. Listen to his voice. And if you have one that actually has the video, <laughs> video, the film of him, his 
attitude, his body language. I mean, it was actually jaunty. I don't know any other word for it. The way that he moved his head, the clarity, the strength, the confidence of his voice is amazing. The people needed that so much. They needed to hear that voice. There is a famous picture of FDR in an open car with a, you know, they used to have the cigarette holder and the cigarette beyond that, and he's got his chin just jutting out and this cigarette. It was one of the most famous pictures of Roosevelt because it captured that sense of absolute confidence that we can beat this. And he gave the people hope. He gave them the sense that there was a solution and things started to change. Listen to that recording. See if you can see why he was elected to four terms. There has been no other president that was elected four times. Now, he died three months into his fourth term, and Truman took over. And actually, that spurred the 22nd Amendment, which now limits presidents to two terms. Four terms. And of course, right after the Great Depression was World War II. But he was that thread. He was that that hope in leadership and in solution that the people needed that allowed them to be able to manage their fear, to allow them to be able to not be so much a part of the problem, but to move forward. And as I was thinking about this, I said, you know, let's take this a step deeper. Let's take this into a spiritual realm. Frank talked about our, our uh, Tuesday night gathering, uh, online gathering, where we had two people Um, who had had these near-death experiences. Actually, one of them calls it a death experience. He was literally dead. It wasn't just near death. But as you hear them talk, and and we were listening to him, and obviously it it captured Frank because he wanted to mention it to you, but it captured me too. Even though I'd heard the stories before, and I've heard others like them, there was a sense of confidence and calm serenity in their voices as they were telling us these stories. They are so convinced of what they experienced about the nature of their God and the nature of whatever is coming next that they just confidently and calmly told us that there was absolutely no fear in that experience, even in the blackness, as one described it, of that experience. There was no fear. There was a sense of complete acceptance No condemnation whatsoever. A complete embrace, a holding, that whatever was coming was going to be guided and directed and and protected. And they were telling us the same thing with different details, but they were so calm and so confident. They made you believe that everything was going to be okay. FDR made the people believe everything was going to be okay. We need that hope. We need that understanding. And what has always attracted me to at least Brady's near-death experience, but Patricia was the same way, was that it matched so well the experiences of all the mystics that we have been studying here for years, all the contemplatives that we have studied here for years. When you go into a near-death experience, everything that means to being you as a physical human being is stripped away. And the only thing that is left is your being connected with being 
the ground of all being. When you move into a mystical experience, when you move into contemplative spirituality, what you are doing is intentionally stripping away everything that it means to be you as a physical human and moving into that same space. And when those mystics come back, when those contemplatives come back to tell us of their experiences, what do they say? It's the same thing. Everything is going to be okay. There is nothing to fear. We have this God who is taking care of us in a way that we can't even imagine. When we get our thoughts out of the way, when we get all those pigeonholed categories and, and, and distinctions and judgments and, and stored up fears out of the way, we see something that is so completely different. I wanted to read you just one little bit from one of my favorite mystics, and she is amazing. It's Julian of Norwich, and uh, we did study her a little bit here. What she says here is what they all say, but she says it in such a way that it just has to capture your attention. And you need to understand something about Julian. We don't even really know her name. She's named after the church where she became what's called, what's called an anchoress. She was actually walled into the walls of the church, and she stayed there for the rest of her life, You know, just having food passed into her, another window for her to be able to counsel and, and advise and help people. But that was her function. Medieval, it was happening. This is, this is 14th century. But she, as a small child, lived through the bubonic plague, the Black Death, the first round that devastated Europe. In her town of Norwich, 75% at many estimates of the people died. Two-thirds of the clergy died. Only one in three of the market stalls ever returned again after this was over. You know, we think our 1% death rate is just, imagine 75%. Three-quarters of the people, families devastated, children homeless, bodies being carried out. She lived that as a child. And then as a 30-year-old, she became deathly ill herself and probably had her own near-death experience, but she had a mystical experience as well. And she called them revelations, and she wrote about them quickly at the time. But over 20 years, walled up in her cell in the, at the uh, Church of St. Julian of Norwich, she expanded on that and wrote more about what those revelations meant. And I wanted to read just a couple of paragraphs from them because it's going to give you a sense of that clear, confident, convicted voice again. She writes, All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. We see that evil things happen, and they cause such harm that we cannot imagine that any good will come of them. As we contemplate these things in grief and sorrow, we cannot resign ourselves, as we should, to the positive contemplation of God. The reason for this is that our intellect is now so blind that we are incapable of knowing the marvelous and sublime power, wisdom, and goodness of the Blessed Trinity. It is as if God said, Take care to have faith and trust now. And in the end, you will really see the whole thing with perfect joy. And similarly, in those same words quoted earlier, I have the power to make all things well. I see a great comfort in the work that God still has to do. There is a deed which the Blessed Trinity shall perform on the last day, I think, 
But when this deed will be performed and how it will be done is not known to any of God's creatures under Christ and will remain hidden until it happens. Now the reason why God wants us to know about this future deed is that he wants us to be more at peace and more easy in our minds and to stop thinking about the disturbing things that inhibit our true joy in him. This great deed of our Lord God planned before the beginning of time, treasured and hidden in his bosom, is known only to himself. By it, he will make all things well. For just as the Blessed Trinity created everything from nothing, so too the Trinity will make all those things well, which are not right. I love this. Marion and I got the chance to attend a retreat 25 years ago with Thomas Keating, who is another mystic and a contemplative and the one who brought Centering Prayer back into the Western Christian tradition. Amazing man. And we actually got a moment to talk to him after one of the, one of the uh, convocations. And he was sitting in his wheelchair and we were standing and talking to him. And I don't know how we got on the subject of, of you know, what happens after death and who's saved this, you know, the typical questions you always want to ask the wise man, right? And he said, you know, I have a great hope that a lot of things happen in the dying process because I don't know when they'd happen otherwise. It's the same sort of idea that Julian is talking about. We look at the situation from our point of view and we can't see how this person can possibly ever be reconciled with God. How can they ever be saved? How can they ever go to heaven? We look at the situation in our lives, whether it's our lives personally or our national life or the global situation, and we can't understand how in the world this makes any sense. The absurdity, the death, the destruction. How is this ever going to be made right? We see people going through the justice system and getting off or getting this and getting that, and we feel justice is not served. How is that ever going to be made right? And Julian is saying, there is some deed that is coming that you can't know anything about. No one knows anything about. But God is who God is. God is love. God is forgiveness. God is all those things. It's going to be okay. Can you trust that? Not without the experience of who God is. If that's just an abstract thought, if that's been something that's been imported into your brain by me or somebody else, no, it's not going to move the needle of your emotions and the needle of your fear. But if you experience that goodness yourself, then you will be one who comes back with your hair whitened by the experience of God with that clear and confident voice that all will be well and all manner of things will be well. And she didn't stop there. Listen to where she goes with this. It was astonishing to me, and I considered it carefully in later years, that during these revelations I was continually shown that our Lord God, as far as he himself is concerned, does not have to forgive because he is unable to be angry. I want you to think about that. She says it would be impossible for him. He doesn't need to forgive because it's impossible for him to be angry. Now, I've thought about this a lot, you know. If God really is love, then God really also is forgiveness. He is forgiveness. He is that state 
of absolute freedom to be completely connected with every one of us. His psyche, his emotions are never compromised. He is never victimized in a way by us or anyone else that would cause him to lose that connection and then have to forgive it later on. We have to do that. We find ourselves disconnected from God, but God is never disconnected from us. God lives the state of forgiveness. God is the state of forgiveness. He's not angry. I've experienced this. Julian says it so much better and with so much more conviction. I saw with absolute certainty that where our Lord is, peace is the rule, and there is no place for anger. I saw no anger of any kind in God, no matter how long I looked Indeed, as I see it, if God were able to be angry for just one second, we should have no life, abode, or existence. There's this great line from Angelus Silesius. He says, if God stopped thinking about us for one second, you want to finish that and say we would cease to exist? He says God would cease to exist. Think about where that takes the equation another mystic. If God stopped thinking about us for one second, he would cease to exist. Why? He would cease to exist as himself. Who he is is intricately, intimately connected with us. He is that connection. If he stopped thinking about us for a moment, he would cease to exist as himself. For just as we derive our existence from the endless power of God, his endless wisdom and endless goodness, so are we preserved by these same qualities. Though we poor wretches experience conflict and strife within ourselves, we are still wholly enveloped in God's humility, goodness, and kindness. For I saw very clearly that our eternal friendship, our abode, our life, and our existence is in God. So I saw that God is our true peace and that he is our true preserver when we ourselves are not at peace. He continually works to bring us to eternal peace. And so when, by the action of his mercy and grace, we have become humble and gentle, we are really safe. When the soul is really at peace with itself, it is immediately united to God because there can be no anger in God. God is love, not anger. And I know what's going through your minds right now. You're thinking about all those Old Testament passages you read in Sunday school, right? The wrath of God and the things that he did because he was angry. But remember Jesus. Remember what Jesus portrayed about the Father. Remember how Jesus selectively quoted his own scripture, our Old Testament, Only those passages that comported with, connected with, identified with who he knew his father to be. Realizing that the descriptions of God as an angry God were descriptions from human point of view. That's the way it feels to us. That's the way life presents to us. But it was never meant to be a description of God's nature, even though it's in the Bible. And I know I can get run on a rail for that, but you know what? Jesus was selective in what he chose to quote to the people that he was teaching. I think I am in pretty good company here. God is not angry. God is love. All who really experience God in this this 
contemplative sense that we've been talking about. Whether it's life that hands us the stripping away because of an illness, because of a near-death experience, or whether we intentionally do it by practicing stripping away, everyone who encounters and experiences God's presence has this same sense that all will be well. All is well. That God is not angry, that God likes us, takes pleasure in us, can't wait to have us show up. His presence is always there, but not always ours. All right, so I haven't quoted the Bible yet, right? Well, let me do that, just so I can bring this thing to a, a nice little close here. Paul is a mystic. What do you think it was that happened on the Damascus Road? when he was struck blind, when he went through the vision that he saw there. And in 2 Corinthians, he tells us that he was caught up to the third heaven, which in Jewish cosmology is the abode of God. It is the, one of the highest heavens. It was a place that Jesus called paradise from the cross. And he doesn't know how it happened. He doesn't know if he was in the body or if he was out of the body. He doesn't know how in the world that worked. And what he saw there, he said he was not permitted to say, which is a way of saying he couldn't put it into words. There was no words to describe what it was that he saw there, envisioned there. But it changed him. It put a conviction in him. And it changed the way that he expressed himself. Look at what he says in Romans 8 and see how that experience of God's true nature affected the way that Paul taught, affected the way that he experienced life and the attitude that he had. First thing he says, verse 1, Romans 8, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Everything's going to be well, right? For those who are in Christ Jesus. I quoted that from the NASB, New American Standard. I want to switch to the message now for the next section here. A little bit easier to understand. Starting at verse 2, he says, A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. And now what the law code asked for but we couldn't deliver is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. See what he's saying there? It is in the immersion, it is in the experience, it is in the connection with God that we find the strength. How did he say, when I'm weak, I'm strong, right? Because it's God who moves through me at that moment. It's not me anymore. I'm played out. I'm done. In that experience, we find what the real recipe for life is. But if we keep trying to do it with all those pigeonholed understandings and all of those links in our brain, all that does is reinforce the fear. All that does is reinforce the mechanism that takes us further and further away from perfect love, which is the only thing that casts out the fear. 
But if we're going to experience it, as Paul says, it changes everything in the way that we proceed. God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is, and we know who we are. In that case, father and children. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. There's a deed coming, right? See how this connects with Julian and everything else we're talking about? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. And I want to switch to the NESB for the last. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know about you, but that's about as well as it gets. That's wellness. Do you see what Paul is saying to us? Do you see what his experience of who God is convinced him to speak with such boldness? I can imagine Paul with a cigar holder, a little cigarette holder, and his chin jutting out as he says these words with such absolute conviction. Why do the mystics, why do those who have near-death experiences all come back saying that all is well, that all things are going to be put right? Why is it that every time I move into that contemplative space, why is it every time that I go into centering prayer, why is it every time I just take a walk and allow myself to be completely enveloped and immersed in what I'm seeing without playing the tape and naming everything that I see, why is it every time that I just allow myself to fall into a conversation and just listen to what is being said without any kind of critique, any kind of mental activity, that I feel the wellness again, that I feel that everything is going to be okay, even though the circumstances have not changed an iota, even though all the troubles that I was worried about and are fearful of are still waiting for me, whether they're clear or present or not, they're still there. But why is it when I move into this space, I realize that everything is okay? It's only our fear that obscures the wellness that is the ground of all being, the wellness that is what this life is really made of. Without getting too poetic, this whole universe is made of love. It's made of unity and connection and wellness, and it's only our fear. All of that catalog of clear and present dangers, past and present and future, or none at all, that obscures it. The fear is what fills our minds with our thoughts and obliterates the wellness, the awareness of the wellness. Just like the stars at dawn. Think about the stars. You go out and you see the stars at night. At dawn, what happens to them? 
They go away. No, they didn't go away. They're still right exactly there. They never leave us. We are swimming in stars. Our planet is moving through a sea of stars, and they can't help but being exactly where and what they are at all times. It's just that the nearby star comes up and scatters blue light through our atmosphere and obscures them for a time until sunset when we realize they never went anywhere. They're still there. And we go through life in the daytime of our mental activity. But if we, or life does it for us, sets the sun of our conscious thinking and thoughts and fears, then the stars come back out. The wellness that was always there, that is the ground of our being, is visible again. We know it again. It never went anywhere And we can see it has always been our reality and always will be our reality that all shall be well. It's kind of like one of those movies that is like one long car chase. You know those movies? They get you on and they never let you go and they're just pumping, pumping, pumping the whole time. And you're running from the danger and you're running from the danger. It's like a bad dream where you're running from the, the monster. And then they have this one quiet moment where, yeah, the danger is still clear But for a moment, it's not present anymore. And you just have that quiet place. And they have a conversation. And you get a little information about the characters. And maybe they laugh and they do something. And it's just that break before it starts again. Those are the moments that we can have. Those are the moments that we can create for ourselves. In the midst of everything that there is, clear and present out there, to be afraid of, to need to plan and protect from, but to find those moments that bring us back to the connection and remind us that the basic reality is everything is okay. The danger may persist, but the fear doesn't have to. The only thing that we have to fear is fear itself. It's the fear that keeps us from seeing the perfect love that once seen can cast out the fear. We can act appropriately to every clear and present danger that we face and let that fear do its work. Let it focus us. Let it motivate us. Let it propel us. Let it prepare us, protect us. And then we can let it go again as we find that next quiet moment and realize that even though we need to do this in our lives here, everything is well. All manner of things are well. And we can remind ourselves in those moments that the danger is temporary. And the fear is temporary too. We won't always need it. We need fear right now to help us to survive. But we won't always need it. And it won't always be necessary. And in the end, all will be well. And if all's not well, (laughs) then it's not the end. And we won't ever know how We won't ever really see it coming. And we won't have the certainty that we crave for. But if we set our sun of conscious thoughts and set the sun of our fears so that we can see the stars again, then we will just know that we know that all is well and all shall be well and all manner of things will be well. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We need your help in this. This is not easy for us to do. 
especially in the face of our fears, especially in the face of heightened fears, to be able to find those quiet moments, to be able to let go of all of the planning and all the thinking and all the worry and anxiety and stress so that we can see you again, so that we can see that all is well again, so that we can see that you have provided even for this, somehow, in some way that we can't see, you have still provided for this. So we need your help, Lord. We need to understand that we are safe enough to let go of all the planning and all the thinking for moments on end so that we can reconnect with you, commune with you again, and have another starting point, have another foundation under us that allows us to move through what we need to do in the moments that follow and to keep this oscillation going so that we are constantly reminded, refueled, re-energized, re-convinced that you are our God and we are your people. And in that relationship, we can't lose. If you are for us, nothing can come against us as long as we lean into you. Help us to at least do that. We want to lean into you, Lord. We want to see who you really are and be reminded again that everything that we do is only through you, has been done in you first. And even as we love, we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, all right. Time to take virtual hands, everybody. Wherever you are, maybe you can stand up. Maybe you can actually take hands with your loved one or... Maybe take the dog's paw. How about that? (laughs) Whose father? Our father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So all of us want to thank you, every one of you, for making these 13 years possible. Um, Without you, it doesn't happen. Without you, there's no reason for it to happen. So thank you for giving us the opportunity to serve for these 13 years. And come and join us on, yeah, come and join us on Tuesday. Come and join us on Wednesday, 6.30. Frank gave you all the information. If you uh, can't remember it, just call Frank. He'll tell you. See you soon.